You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, is there any way we're going to be able to travel this summer? A novel about a lethal outbreak, Factor Fiction, and Inside the New Hospice Vaughn. But first, tracking the vaccine. Need a shot in the arm, but you can't figure out how to get one? Vaccine Hunters Canada to the rescue. It's an all-volunteer group dedicated to helping people right across this nation navigate the difficult and different registration systems and get vaccinated. Michelle Smythe is with Vaccine Hunters Canada. She joins us now on the feed. Thanks for taking the time. I know you are busy. Sure am, but I'm really glad to be here, and thanks for asking us. Earlier this week, it was announced that you will be partnering with the City of Toronto. What will you be doing to help Torontonians get vaccinated? Well, I should say that the City of Toronto is just one of many means to gather information, and this one improves the accuracy and the timeliness of the information that we're sharing. And we're thrilled to be able to have a formal partnership with the City of Toronto, but hope to build more in our network with other public health units and pharmacies and vaccine clinics across the country. You know, Vaccine Hunters Canada has been growing and quickly. Why is it such a phenomenon, do you think, Michelle? I think it's probably two big things. The first is that uh, obviously there is an unmet need in the systems that all of the, you know, leaders in our country have tried to put together, um, and we are stepping in as everyday citizens to try and fill that need. I also think that it is sparking uh, a sense of community and citizenship that we really all needed at a time like this. So people are having really good um, feelings participating in it. How does it work? How do you work? So we use a bunch of digital tools to crowdsource and aggregate um, available vaccine information. And, of course, now these new partnerships that we're starting to establish as well. The information comes in from a variety of different sources, um, and we have an operation hub on Discord where Everything is being fed into as an aggregator of information, and then it's shared out through our Twitter and Facebook channels. And what information then is put out? Gosh, so many different things are available uh, from where vaccines in general, the information around vaccines in general can be found to specific clinics and um, pop-ups that are occurring around the country. We also really try to um, empower people to find relevant information like how to update their um, health care card information or get a ride to a clinic. Um, we've even started to share some of the local restaurants near clinics so that you can grab a bite to eat from them after you've been vaccinated. Why has it been so difficult for citizens, for for all of us, to navigate the registration system so far? I think every system probably has its challenges, and these are extraordinary circumstances that are really testing the limits of these systems. And, you know, the reality is the information is not, it's not like running a company, right? There's an unpredictable nature to the delivery of the vaccines into the country. And, you know, everybody is doing their very best to deliver the information in a timely manner. I know there's a lot of people who are frustrated, and we're doing our best to be empathetic, but also, you know, 
provide the service of the most up-to-date information that we can. And so many people have found what they needed and have been vaccinated. They're sharing that information with us. And now we're encouraging them to become hunter-helpers and find other people in their community that they can you know, assist in getting vaccinated. I know your partnership with the City of Toronto is just days old. How does that work? So at the end of each day of vaccinations, what kind of information are you able to gather to give to those who are looking for their vaccination? If there's any news around clinics or pop-ups in any particular region, it's not... um, entirely limited to the city of Toronto. There's outskirts as well. If they have it, they're going to share it with us. But we're also going to follow their guidance in terms of when to share it. And I think it's just a bit of a learning as we go in terms of what is going to work best for the various communities that they're trying to serve. And, you know, hopefully we will help more people than you know, we otherwise might have if we had just tried to wing it on our own. How do you feel when you look at news stories where you see lineups that are not even just around the block, they are blocks and blocks of people and some who have camped out overnight waiting for the chance to have a vaccination? What does that make you feel like? Gosh, you know, I'm really empathetic with those folks because I was in one just the other day for my daughter and I know it's tough, and I understand the frustration that some people have, but there's also, on the other side, elation from people who do get a vaccination or do get an appointment for a vaccination if they're lining up to get pre-registered. And we have to take, uh, you know, both sides of that story and, and weigh the overall benefit. And, you know, the key is we want to get as many people uh, using these vaccines as quickly as possible, and particularly in the neighborhoods that are at the greatest risk right now who have been hardest hit, um, we really, really need to give them a chance to get ahead of this virus. You use social media alerts, and there's a website to document where people can go. Is it is that easy to navigate? Because that's been a real issue for so many of us, just being stuck and stopped at, at every turn when we're trying to find and book an appointment. Yeah, so, you know, my role within um, the Vaccine Hunters Canada team is to moderate the Facebook page. And I actually joined to set up the Facebook page and moderate it um, just a little over a week ago. And I get that the technology, especially Discord as a platform, can be a little bit intimidating. Even Twitter sometimes can be a little bit intimidating. But if you need help, you just ask for it. I'll be there. I'll send you links. And hopefully it won't feel so intimidating. If we need help, if we need you, where do we go, Michelle? You can find Canadian Vaccine Hunters on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Discord. Thank you, Michelle Smythe, for what you're doing and for Vaccine Hunters Canada in general, an all-volunteer group helping to get this nation inoculated. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. And a York Region entrepreneur has created something similar to help us navigate through the often complicated and confusing vaccine booking system. It's called the Markham Stouffville Guide to Vaccinations, an innovative and easy-to-understand chart that literally points you in the right direction. Ray Lai, the man behind this, joins us now on the feed. Thanks for being with us, Ray. Thank you for having me, Ed. So why did you put this together? I receive calls every day, emails. Twitter, Nextdoor. Nextdoor is a thing. People asking me how they can access vaccines and if they're eligible. People call me because I've come to be kind of a vaccine appointment authority through my volunteer work with Markham and Stola Vaccinates. Um, we are a volunteer organization that 
uh, aims to lower the barriers for seniors to get their vaccination appointments and then drive them to their vaccination appointments. And we've been running that since March 1st. The community knows we exist and uh, by extension knows that I have uh, a little bit more of a greater understanding of vaccine policy and vaccine rules. Uh, and they reached out to me asking for some help. Um, after a deluge of, of, uh, of requests, I've decided to just put up something for everybody to consume. Um, instead of a wall of text, I made a single PowerPoint slide. Hopefully people would find it uh, a little bit more clear, a little bit easier to use to get to their shot that they all deserve. So since we are radio right now, can you describe what we will see and would see and have seen in terms of the PowerPoint chart? Sure. So it's uh, a, it's a white slide, white background, with a number of boxes on the left-hand side, a bunch of arrows, and a, a number of boxes on the right. It sounds very complicated, but it hopefully isn't. Um, it, you find your eligibility group on the left-hand side. So uh, if you're a senior over 60, there's a box for you. If you are in a hotspot and over a certain age group, such as if you're in postal code L3S and over 35, there's a box for you. Um, if there, if you're in another postal code and you're over the age of 40, 45, then there's a box for you. You find your box and you follow the colored arrows to the right-hand side to find out where you can book. And the box on the right-hand side has... Uh, a website and the location of the vaccine uh, vaccine sites that you are eligible to book. Uh, essentially, if you're over the age of forty, right now there is a box for you. So, has the feedback been successful? Have you heard from people that this is working for them? Absolutely. The one of the things that I keep hearing is uh, people can't make heads or tails of the vaccine. Uh, rollout strategy, and uh, as a result, people have to go to three, four different websites, uh, Ontario website, York Regional website. People try to find it on Markham's website. They can't find anything. Um, people don't have time or can't decipher a wall of text. And I'm a communicator by trade. I'm a tech communicator by trade. Uh, I, I run my own software firm along with uh, a bunch of partners, and if we can't communicate, then we don't have a business. If we can't communicate properly, we don't have a business. So um, the, the feedback has been, this is great communication. And it simplifies uh, understanding for York Region residents, especially for Markham and Stodal. And uh, it's better than reading a wall of text. How often do you have to refresh it or update it? Oh, so I refresh it pretty much two or three times a week. Uh, the, the last refresh was a couple of days ago when uh, the province announced that anyone over the age of 40 in a provincial hotspot can book, and that came on the same day that York Region dropped the age eligibility for postal L3S and a number of uh, York Region hotspots down to 35. So I, I refresh it whenever there are new announcements that are significant uh, that are made. For example, now that pregnant woman can book, I had to refresh it so that uh, people who are going through pregnancy right now uh, can easily find a way to get their, their shot. And certainly there are a lot of people who are pregnant. Um, they're jamming up my inbox and I send them the graphic and they're very happy to find out that they're eligible. Ray, because it's been so complicated for people to chase and find and book their vaccinations, do you think by making it easier that more people are going to roll up their sleeves and get the shot? I surely hope so. Uh, I think lowering the barrier includes simple communication for people to understand where they sit in the line right now and how they can find their vaccinations. It is not useful to have multiple web pages with multiple walls of text and just leave it to the masses to try to decipher it. It doesn't, doesn't do a, a proper service for everyone who's willing to roll up their sleeves and do their part for Canada, for York Region, for Markham and Stouffville, um, when they have to go hunt down their vaccines. But, and, and to be frank with you, um, uh, uh, so what I'm doing with a PowerPoint slide and what Vaccine Hunters Canada, the, the, those folks are doing, we're, we're doing a, a really important work. We're really doing important work right now, but it really shouldn't have to be the case.
if we had clear and simple communication from the government, then we wouldn't need to put in our time, our own personal time to help people get vaccinated. But the fact that you are and Vaccine Hunters Canada as well, you know, in a way you're helping to save lives, if you if you want me to be perfectly frank. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't go that far. We're certainly trying to lower the barriers and create a better understanding of where people lie when in, in the, the, the grander scheme of things when it comes to the vaccine rollout strategy. Um, I just want to see shots in arms. I want to see my fellow neighbors get vaccinated so we have uh, a chance at a proper summer. Where could people go to see what you've got? You can find, or you and anyone in Markham Silva can find these navigation guides that I create and update uh, on my Twitter feed. That's twitter.com slash Lai underscore Markham. That's R-A-Y-L-A-I underscore Markham. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. I have a public profile on, on Facebook. And uh, you, you, every time I update, I blast it out to everyone, and uh, it is available for everyone to consume. Can I quote something from your Twitter feed? Find your box. Absolutely. Okay, here it is. Find your box on the left and follow the arrows. Don't delay. Book today. Absolutely. Find your box. Follow the arrows. Book now. (laughs) Ray Lai, thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much for having me. After the break, an ER doctor who penned a pandemic thriller. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. There are a number of reasons why a portion of the Canadian population is struggling with vaccination hesitancy, even downright defiantly saying no to a shot in the arm. As the head of ER at Vancouver St. Paul's Hospital, Dr. Daniel Kalla has been in the COVID-19 trenches since the pandemic was declared more than a year ago. And as an international best-selling author, he has put into words his strong argument for vaccinations as a way to confront, control, and thwart the natural spread of the coronavirus. His newest book, due out on Tuesday, dives deep into the vaccine debate to V or not to V. That is the question, Dr. Daniel Kalla, and thank you for joining us on the feed. Oh, it's great to be here, and Thanks for having me on. So you say that you wrote Lost Immunity, that's the name of your new book, as an allegory for the debate over vaccines. Why? Well, you know, interestingly, I finished it on the first draft of it on the day I heard about the new virus coming out of Wuhan, China, that turned out to be COVID. And so this has been an issue brewing, you know, in the public and the medical world for years and a concern. And it's just absolutely come to a head this year. I mean, vaccination is one of the great miracles of modern medicine and how it became a political and, uh, you know, a movement that really has nothing to do with science has always astounded me. But we in medicine are so concerned about the potential effects of of people's beliefs and misbeliefs surrounding vaccines. You feel very strongly that vaccines are imperative, that they're safe, that they're beneficial. But we both know, we all know, I, I believe that studies tell us that vaccines aren't perfect either. No, that's true, Anne. No medicine is perfect. But, you know, and if you compare vaccines to other medications, from Tylenol to aspirin, they're safer than almost any other medication on the market. Even over-the-counter medications have more side effects than most vaccines. So for the benefit, particularly the population at whole, they're an incredibly safe medication. What is your thought about how the vaccine for COVID-19, whether it is Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, if it is uh, approved uh, at at this point for use in Canada. Can you tell me why you think that it will, having vaccines, having them available, vaccinating people will make a difference in containing, if not eradicating, COVID-19? Well, sure. Well, we, for one, have a living lab going on in Israel right now because they're so far ahead of other countries. And we're seeing the rate of COVID plummet there. We're seeing the rate of death plummet there. 
Uh, we have, there is no question that this vaccine prevents death. And it doesn't just prevent death for the individual getting the vaccine, it prevents death from interrupting the transmission of the vaccine. So we know beyond a doubt that this, this will work um, once we reach that you know, heralded state of herd immunity. That's the goal, to get enough people immune such that the virus can't spread anymore and will die off naturally. Why do you think anti-vaxxers are feeling the way they are? What is it that is promoting and prompting them to say no to being vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's multifactorial, and I think a lot of it is well-intentioned. I think there's intelligent, well-reasoned people who are anti-vax, but unfortunately, you know, anti-vax has been around since the smallpox vaccine was first invented a couple hundred years ago, but it really took off in the late 90s around a very fraudulent study Dr. Wakefield's study, who's since lost his medical license around associating measles and autism. That study has been proven as an absolute fraud, and huge studies have proven there was no association. But the message from that study took hold, and it became a political movement, a belief system that exists, as you know, in, in nowadays, when we with the internet and with news that's tailored to the news people want to hear, it becomes an echo chamber. So people hear what they want to hear on vaccines and don't look at the objective science. They use anecdotal evidence rather than big population studies, which are the only way to assess the effect of a medicine like a vaccine. So who is fueling this misinformation and who is putting together these conspiracy theories? Well, you know, I touched on this in the book, Anne, that there's people, you know, one of the characters in the book is a naturopath, very educated, fiercely anti-vax, because he has a son with autism who developed autism shortly after receiving a measles vaccine. And to him, he could not shake the belief that it wasn't related to that vaccine. And there are lots of people like that who have personal tragedies in their own family that they associate with vaccines and, you know, and who know people like that. And some people are sort of of the alternate medicine belief. And it, it, it's a very heterogeneous group, that vaccine hesitant. But as I said, much of it's well-intentioned and some of it's associated with personal tragedies. But it's not based on scientific evidence. It really isn't. There, there just isn't any for it. <laughs> Dr. Kalla, is a vaccine hesitancy in the world of doctors and physicians and nurses in Canada, are there some in that sector of, of our life and our life-saving that are reluctant themselves to have the vaccine? Yeah, that's a good question. There are, um, but it's a tiny minority. I mean, I work with some nurses in the emergency department who have refused to get the vaccine. In all truth, I worked with one very smart, very compassionate, wonderful nurse who's always been vaccine hesitant for his own reasons, never got the flu vaccine, refused the COVID vaccine, ended up very, very sick in hospital with COVID. Uh, and, you know, and, and now I believe regrets that decision. Um, it, it, it's, it's not as common, I would say, as in the general public, because most people in the medical world and healthcare world are, are more attuned to the science and, and more supportive of vaccines. But yeah, it exists everywhere. A new study released in April like just last month, uh, eight in 10 Canadians do want to be vaccinated. Are those encouraging numbers for you, Dr. Kalla? Very encouraging, um, because in, in the past, as you know, and it's been lower than that, but it's still, to my mind, not high enough. I mean, we rely on, you know, the figure that's generally quoted to get herd immunity is 70%. And seven out of 10 people need to be immune. And no vaccine is 100% effective, so you need, you know, more than 80% to receive the vaccine to, to get to that that goal number that we want. So, I mean, ideally it would be 95% of the population or 100% in the perfect world, but 8 out of 10 is certainly better than 5 out of 10. Lost Immunity, it is a thriller, it is a novel, it is a little scary, I must say. Can you set the stage for us? Where does the story take place and what are the health issues at stake and why does the story, in my view, take such a shocking turn, leaving us wondering whether it's sabotage, not science, that has gone wrong? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not the COVID virus per se, although the COVID virus certainly plays into the background of this story. But basically in Seattle, uh, there's a new outbreak of a meningitis that sweeps through the city, as some of these meningitis do, and it kills particularly younger you know, youths and teenagers and some within hours before antibiotics can be effective. 
and there's a new unproven vaccine that might be the city's only hope to contain it. And there's the heroine is the chief public health officer, Dr. Lisa Dyer, whose own family is anti-vax, but she's the one who has to implement the citywide campaign. But unfortunately, after the vaccine at first is effective, a few people start to die from side effects. And it becomes unclear, as you said, whether this is because there's manipulation or tainting of the vaccine or it's true side effects. But Lisa has to struggle to try to discover this kind of Trojan horse conspiracy before it's too late. Um, but it was just my way of, 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 of making an allegorical story about vaccines and anti-vax and the dangers of if, if an anti-vax belief was to gain traction in the community, just how damaging it could be to stopping an epidemic or an outbreak. Do you think that you're able to present both sides of the debate in lost immunity? I hope so. I mean, clearly, as we're establishing, I'm very pro-vaccine, but I have sympathy and, and empathy for the anti-vax side. I know it's a deeply held belief on, on, on their part, and, and it doesn't come from malevolence or necessarily even ignorance. But I, I really wanted, because I thought, it, you know, if I made them, if I, if I made them, you know, one-dimensional uh, villainous characters, it, it wouldn't do much good to convince anybody. My, my idea in this story, or my intent in this story, is, is to scare people into the realization the risk of not vaccinating the population. And I wanted the anti-vaxxers to come as very sincere people. And, you know, and it, as it turns out, they're not even necessarily, you know, it's not even necessarily an anti-vaxxer who's behind the conspiracy of what's happening. But, yeah, I, I hope they're, and, and to be honest, the people who have read it so far, even people who were a bit vaccine hesitant, have said that, that it's a fair portrayal. So I'm proud of that. So in your estimation, then, who should be reading this book? <laughs> You can't ask an author that. Not <laughs> everybody to read this book, <laughs> but but my goal always when I write a novel, you know, medicine is my gimmick, and never more so than on a subject like vaccine is to is to both entertain and educate. You know, I'm hoping, as you said, to to, to create a suspenseful story that keeps people on the edge of their seat. But I also want to convey a few just basic facts about the science of vaccine and the history of the anti-vax movement. And, you know, how the, the two movements meet and sometimes collide. And so uh, I really hope that, you know, because nowadays people are so familiar with terms like herd immunity and, and all the, the vaccine lingo that, that, that wasn't common knowledge until COVID. And I, and I just want to explain it a bit deeper and give people a little more understanding of the issues behind it. Dr. Kalla, why do you care? You know, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of pushback when this uh, book is released on May the 4th, just in the next couple of days. A lot of people who will be very, uh, the anti-vaxxers perhaps, uh, very upset by what they read and uh, you're trying to persuade rather than push. Why do you care? I, I care because I mean I think it's I think getting vaccinated is more than just something to to do to protect yourself and your family. You have an obligation to society to do it. That's the whole intention of vaccine is 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 to provide a societal shelter from an infectious threat. And you know, unlike things like smoking or other things that are health risks to your own self, being anti-vax, not getting your kids immunized, not again just against COVID, but against measles and all other infectious threats, is a risk to everybody. And I think we all owe it to, to try to convince um, the vaccine hesitant that sometimes it's necessary. And some vaccines are more important than others. I understand if you don't want to get an HPV vaccine, or there's certain vaccines that you can avoid if you're worried about side effects. But this one, covid is absolutely essential. The only way to stop this pandemic is to get the world immunized against it. And so I think it's one of the most important societal issues and obligations we have right now. I'm going to ask you this as an author rather than as the head of ER at Vancouver St. Paul's Hospital. How do people get this book? How, where do I go to buy it? <laughs> oh, hopefully it'll be pretty widely available. But, you know, certainly, you know, with, with COVID causing in Ontario, some lockdowns and not all bookstores being open, certainly online at uh, Amazon or Chapters or any of your independent booksellers. I always encourage that. And if you go through my website at danielcalla.com, there's a link, there's an easy link for ordering online. Lost Immunity will be released on May the 4th. It is a thriller. Dr. Daniel Calla, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much, Anne.
Our next stop takes us to the new Hospice Vaughn. Belinda Marchese is the executive director of Hospice Vaughn, also a very good friend to all of us here at the radio station. Welcome back to the feed, Belinda. Thank you so much, Tina. It's great to connect and hear your voice. It's definitely been quite a year, hasn't it? It certainly has. So before we explore the opening of the new location, briefly remind our listeners about the services of Hospice Vaughn and what it provides. Absolutely. Hospice care is about kindness and compassion. It's about taking care of one another in our communities to ensure as we're dealing with our declining health issues that we have the support that we need. It's very practical. At the end of the day, most of us want to stay and remain at home with our loved ones. We want to deal with our health concerns, and we just want to be surrounded by the people that we love and ensure that we have the best quality and comforting environment as possible in the community. So Hospice Vaughn has been a community uh, program for 26 years, uh, starting in 1995, with the kindness and compassion of just local citizens taking care of one another. And here we are 26 years later uh, with a very robust community program, caregiver support, children's support program, and a huge grief and bereavement and counseling program to ensure that we take care of the person who's ill, the family, and that we're here for the aftercare after someone dies because it's emotional and it's hard. It certainly is, and so many need the support for sure. Tell us about the new site now and why the need to move and expand. Absolutely. It's really what I call a dream coming true. It's been a a story that's been reflective of the community need. Uh, We know that the healthcare system um, really needs a lot of support. We know that people at their end of life and their families need a lot of care and comfort. And we have uh, been investing the heart and soul of our community for probably close to a decade to say that we need hospice end-of-life care beds in Vaughan. And over the last four or five years, very active engagement to raise dollars to support the capital and the building and to work with our health and community partners because the community was telling us what they needed. And while the care at home is great and many people will be able to stay at home until the very end, for others that's not possible. And there's just been a gap. And, you know, having now the Vaughn community grow and having our first ever hospital, uh, the Cordelucci Vaughn Hospital, and now having our first uh, uh, facility, which will include uh, 10 residential hospice beds, community programs, counseling, and the future development of what we hope to be uh, leaders in, in palliative care with various partners uh, brings us to today. And the Islington and Motherford location uh, has been a dream by so many people from uh, the early uh, dreamers, uh, from people that acquired partnership opportunities with Toronto Regional Conservation Land to uh, provide us close to three acres of land here uh, at Islington and Rutherford to build a 26,000 square foot beautiful building which we hope will provide much care and compassion. And now uh, we moved in just shy of two weeks ago, if you can imagine, Tina, and the building is almost ready. Uh, the community uh, programs have moved in, the administrative team, the healthcare team has been hired. They're here right as we speak. And we are going to be opening up the uh, end-of-life care, healthcare portion of Hospice Vaughn in our new facility uh, named the Mario and Nick Corducci Hospice Palliative Care Center of Excellence in just a couple of weeks. I really just simply have no words. It's amazing. That is amazing and good news indeed. How is the community responding? Well, you know, it's been an interesting story. Um, I have to say uh, the last 15 months, uh, COVID has just rocked everyone's world. And dying and death is much more uh, talked about than it was before. Even though, uh, you know, many people die from age and disease and it's, it's challenging and it's emotional, uh, COVID has made it really difficult. Uh, a lot of people were finding it really difficult um, to care for people at home or have people in other care settings because they couldn't see them. And really the community has been responding by they're so overwhelmed from uh, the COVID um, deaths and the non-COVID deaths and dealing with the inability to grieve together and have those rituals to kind of help ground and, and build what we would normally be able to do in normal times. 
And at the same point, you also have community members and leaders to say, we're here for each other and let's build that resiliency. We're going to get there. And knowing that we've moved into the building now and trying to plan for the opening for the service side, what they're saying is, thank God you're here. Because literally, we have people calling for months and years, do you have beds? Can we bring our loved ones? We now have a wait list already. Our health and community partners are so eager to continue the strong working relationships that we've had for so long. And they're just saying, we really want our loved ones to have end of life, compassionate and dignified care. And I just can't wait to open our doors for the community, for the volunteers, and most of all, for those that we serve. And it's been just it's been a long, hard road, but we're getting there together, and we really know that together we can do much more to support our community. You mentioned COVID. I'm assuming it has also uh, affected or changed how you work? Oh, huge. Uh, technology changes, um, keeping people safe, uh, security pieces, just to make sure that staff and volunteers uh, even the, the challenges in the building construction and getting us to the stage and supply chain issues and costs, it's been a really big challenge for us. Uh, we're still working that out because the end of the day, what drives us is the care. Uh, COVID is, is, is real and it is here. It has affected many of us uh, and, and it's also affected huge amounts of people in the community and one of the areas that we've really seen a huge growth is just in the impact on our counseling and our bereavement services. Uh, we've had the school boards calling, we've had victim services and police calling. The trauma of loss already is difficult and the healing is difficult and the support that we would normally have had been very challenging. So there's all those practical things plus we've had to pivot really quickly to change things in the building and to even make decisions on how to protect the environment when people come for care here. Um, so we're still working out those, those pieces and quality and safety is number one. I can't stress that enough. And we are, we are ready. We've stocked up on, on personal protective equipment. We are ensuring that we're on top of the uh, public health and the Ministry of Health guidelines. Uh, the staff are being trained. The volunteers are being trained. We're making solid decisions to uh, minimize the risk. Um, it's making necessary investments more for staffing roles until we can get volunteers back in here and get through this pandemic. And it's, uh, it's a journey. It's a long journey, but we're getting there. It sure is. How can listeners learn more or donate to the good work at the hospice? Um, that's a really great point. We count on our community support. Um, people need to know about us. People need to help us uh, deliver the support. And we need definitely the donation dollars because we're uh, less than 50% uh, funded by, by the government. And people don't often know that. And we also charge nothing for our services. So uh, hospicelawn.com is our website, and our phone number is 905-850-6266. Uh, reach out to us at info at hospicelawn.com if you have any questions or you need to make a connection with us. Our team is really devoted in working day and night, seven days a week, and we really uh, want to continue to serve our community, and we really appreciate the incredible kindness and generosity so far, and we know together we will, we will meet the needs of our community here in Vaughan, and I uh, just really want to thank um, you, Tina, 105.9, all of our supporters, our donors, our friends, our partners. Um, we will get through COVID, and uh, we will continue to serve, and we will take good care of ourselves and one another because that's the end of the day the most important thing. Belinda Marchese is the Executive Director of Hospice Vaughn. Thank you once again for being here. Thank you too. Take care everyone. When we come back, travel plans this summer? Maybe, maybe not. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. So a lot of us are thinking ahead to summer travel plans. Will that involve leaving our own backyard? Tina Cortez finds out. Beth Potter is president and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. Thanks for your time, Beth. 
Great to be here, Tina. Let's talk numbers. How many jobs and how many millions of dollars lost in tourism because of the pandemic? Well, I hope you're sitting down and ready for some big numbers. Uh, Prior to the pandemic, the tourism industry in Canada was a $105 billion industry, and we employed 1.8 million Canadians. Since the pandemic, um, on average, we are down about 35%, so down to about $68 billion in revenues, um, and uh, we've lost about 500,000 people. Um, and that is, you know, businesses just have not been able to keep their staff on, uh, on the team. Those 500,000 staff members that have been lost, do you think they're going to come back? Well, that's the big question. Um, What we're seeing so far is that uh, those that were displaced from their jobs have moved on to other industries because they needed to continue to, you know, earn a living um, and, you know, keep a roof over their heads. So that 500,000, it's not a matter of recalling them back to work. It's probably recruiting uh, almost 500,000 new people. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about the summer of 2021. Do Canadians have anything to look forward to in terms of travel this summer? Well, we're hoping. And the more that people get vaccines in their arms, um, the the brighter the future looks. Uh, We heard earlier this week from Dr. Tam, um, who said that, you know, 75% of Canadians have their first vaccine, 20% have their second vaccine, and we can start to see an easing of restrictions without an impact on uh, our healthcare system. That's, you know, a bright spot for us these days, um, you know, especially as we're dealing right now with the, the high numbers in the third wave uh, in various parts of the country. Um, but we're definitely focused on local and domestic travel this summer. Um, and we would encourage, you know, if you can, get out and uh, explore your your community, explore your province uh, to do that and, um, and support local this year. And how do we explore our own cities, our own province, our own country? How do we find out where to go? What, what information is out there for us? Well, most destinations, most, uh, most centers have a, uh, an organization called a Destination Marketing Organization. Um, so in Toronto, that one is called Destination Toronto, uh, and they have a website um, that uh, is specifically geared to the leisure traveler, uh, com, and that um, will give you an insight into not only all the vibrant neighborhoods that make up the city of Toronto, um, but the things that are open, the things that you can do, uh, any special events that might be taking place. Um, and um, they've even put together a special uh, section of their website to really promote local food. Um, and it features you know, locally owned restaurants um, in all the different neighborhoods in the city. So that's, that's a Toronto example, but, you know, most... Um, most centers across the across the province have the same: uh, Ottawa, Waterloo, uh, London, Windsor, um, and so you know they're a great resource for you to find out you know what's happening, what's open, and uh, and if there are any special events going on. Recently, the EU said that they would welcome fully vaccinated Americans this summer. Any word on the status for Canadians? Not yet, but this is encouraging, and um, I think that, as I said, as as we roll out the vaccine uh, program here in Canada, um, it it seems to be leading towards um, you know restrictions in travel uh, being lifted. We're seeing that in various parts of the United States, as you said, in the EU uh, and in other countries around the world. Are you optimistic about travel in 2021? What's your message to Canadians? My message is, you know, like I said, get your vaccine if you can. Um, we are ready as an industry uh, to welcome visitors back. Uh, we've put all of the safety um, precautions and health protocols in place um, at our places of business, and we're we're ready. We're ready to go. So we're hoping to uh, to be able to 
um, see those restrictions lift as we head into the summer uh, and most definitely into the fall and we, that we start to, to see people moving a, a, around the province and around the country again. Here's hoping. Beth, thank you for joining us on the feed. No problem. Thanks for having me. Jim Lang next with one of the few Canadians with an NCAA championship. Back in early April, history was made in the NCAA basketball tournament. A little bit of history because the Baylor Bears men's basketball team, they defeated the then undefeated, unbeaten Gonzaga Bulldogs to become NCAA men's basketball champions for the first time in the history of their program. And a big part of it was their graduate assistant and assistant coach, Matthew Gray, Matt Gray from Mississauga. A big part of that win and a big part of basketball and the future basketball Canada. And he joins us on the feed. Good. I'm actually uh, I'm currently in a U-Haul right now driving back to Canada. Uh, unfortunately, with uh, with the pandemic and everything, my uh, my family wasn't able to come down for anything uh, this year, and obviously missed out on the tournament. So I'm excited to go home, see them, and, and celebrate a little bit. Okay, before we get too much to um, your journey to Baylor, this Baylor basketball team. 18 years ago, Scott Drew takes over. They're at the, the bottom of the NCAA food chain after a bunch of off-court scandals. He rebuilds them, and he never gives up this dream. When, when you started being part of the Baylor basketball program, did, what was it about Scott Drew that was able to take this fran- this this program that, that no one thought of as one of the big boys in basketball in America and make it a champion? Yeah, uh, Coach Drew is amazing. Uh, one of the biggest things that I took from him is uh, just his uh, energy and how positive he is. Um, I mean, he's, uh, it's, it's really hard to match his energy, honestly. Um, and I think, you know, he's done a, a great job uh, building the culture at Baylor, um, you know, in terms of uh, the players that he's recruited and, you know, the, the staff that uh, he's brought in to, to help him with, with everything. So um, he's done an amazing job. I'm just, I'm so happy for him that, uh, you know, we were able to pull it off this year and, and win him a national championship. Uh, well, Matthew, I thought Baylor had a more than respectable. They had a solid year going into the March Madness tournament, but I kept hearing about all these other programs that they were a lock to win it all. And not only did Baylor run the table, your smallest margin of victory was 11 points. I mean, when did you guys know that you were that good? Um, I think, uh, you know, I think our guys have uh, a lot of confidence. I mean, um, all of our players are, are super hard workers. Um, you know, they, they spend a lot of time in the gym and, um, you know, I think they just, uh, trust in their work, honestly. Um, you know, and, uh, credit to the coaching staff, um, you know, especially, you know, uh, in the tournament, uh, they did a great job, uh, preparing our guys and, um, you know, going through the scouting report and making sure that, uh, we were ready to go for each game. Basketball, I mean, when I say basketball's in your blood, this is not an overstatement. You have traveled across North America in pursuit of your passion for the game of basketball. Atlanta, Wisconsin, Louisiana, University of Waterloo. Uh, you've had some setbacks, but you, this is you. Basketball is in your DNA. When did it become your sport? How young were you, Matthew, when you realized that when you got up in the morning, it was basketball till you went to bed? Yeah, honestly, I was um, pretty much born with a basketball in my hand. Uh, my dad uh, coached me growing up. He, he was a coach himself. So, um, and, you know, he kind of taught me the ways. And, um, you know, obviously when my, uh, when my playing days stopped, um, you know, I had to kind of figure out another route. And um, for me, it was, it was coaching and, you know, getting in the gym with guys and, you know, helping them get better. So, um, but yeah, it's been uh, a long ride from, you know, uh, Playing in high school and playing university, um, you know, obviously some setbacks with injuries and things like that, and um, you know, now I'm I'm kind of on a different journey, but it's been uh, it's been it's been an exciting journey for sure. Now you obviously player development's a big part of what you do now in basketball, and we have seen such an incredible influx of great basketball players internationally and in the NBA. It's really incredible in the last decade. And you had your own development player training system called After Hours. But from there, you get handpicked to be a graduate assistant for Baylor Bears men's basketball program. That's that's quite a leap. How did that happen, Matthew? Yeah, so um, it's actually uh, kind of crazy. Uh, I didn't even know what a graduate assistant was until uh, one of my mentors, Nate Mitchell, uh, he I suggested that maybe I look into uh, doing something like that. And 
So I started doing some research, and uh, I was actually reaching out to, um, you know, some of my uh, friends that had played at the Division One level to see if they could maybe put me in touch with, um, you know, the, their coaches or anything that uh, might help me get a position like that. And um, it was actually Brady Heslip, who, who used to play for Baylor, who put me in touch with, uh, with the coaching staff um, and, you know, went through a couple of interviews, got accepted into school, um, and, and it just all worked out. But okay, now your resume says NCAA champion. Now that's pretty impressive when you add to all the other things on your list. I know your goal eventually is to get into player development with the NBA. I, now, are you starting to think that now you've made this leap where the future is going to unfold for you with basketball, not just in Canada but across North America, Matthew? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, still, uh, still just trying to enjoy the moment, not really trying to look too far ahead. But um, you know, obviously, uh, being a national champion. Uh, is is huge and obviously a great addition to the resume. Um, not really sure what what the next step is for me, but um, definitely in, in these next couple of weeks, going to start looking into it and um, uh, just kind of going to look into like well, where I'm going to be next. For, for our listeners here in the region in Southern Ontario in the GTA, try to explain to them what it meant to Waco in West Texas when Baylor became national champions. Oh, it was uh, amazing. I mean, obviously. Um, you know, with, uh, with COVID and everything, um, in the tournament, uh, we were in a bubble. So, um, we didn't really have the, the opportunity to interact with, um, with the fans or, you know, obviously, um, our players and our coaches had, uh, uh, their family out and they didn't even get a chance to interact with them, um, because we were in a bubble. But, um, after we won and when we returned to Waco, um, there was people waiting for us at the airport. Uh, we had a parade the other day, and the turnout was amazing. Um, so it was, uh, you know, the, the city of uh, Waco showed out, and uh, they showed their support for sure. You start thinking about where you are now in basketball, Matthew, and Mississauga, Peel region, York region, the GTA in basketball. Are you excited about the future Canadian basketball and the talent, both on the court and the coaching field over the next decade? Really excited. I mean, I think you see it at every level now. Um, you know, we got... Uh, Canadian GMs, we got Canadian uh, assistant coaches in the NBA. Um, obviously, you know, we got um, Canadian GAs, we got Canadian assistant coaches in, in the NCAA, and obviously, you know, a handful of uh, really talented players. Um, so I'm super excited to, to see, um, you know, kind of kind of this next wave of, of talent that we got coming up. And, um, you know, I think uh, Canada basketball is only uh, going to continue to improve and get better. Mississauga's Matthew Gray, a graduate assistant coach for the Baylor Bears men's basketball team now and forever a national champion. Matthew, enjoy the success. Can't wait to see what the future brings for you. Really glad you were able to join us on the show and all the best in the future. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jim. Thanks, Matthew. Take care. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.